Welcome to Words Matter with Katie Barlow and Joe Lockhart. This is the Words Matter Library. Our guest today is a classically trained musician with a master's in opera performance. She's also a New York Times bestselling author. Her latest book is Verify. Joelle Charbonneau, welcome to Words Matter. Thanks so much for having me. I'm flattered. Verify is the first fiction book that we are adding to the Words Matter library. So thank you very much for your time and thank you for sharing it with us. And I'm a fan of yours and a follower of yours on Twitter. And while most of our books and our subjects are generally geared towards journalists and policymakers, people in the world of finance, lawmakers, regulators, and all those influencers, you write for a slightly younger audience. Talk a little bit about that. I do write for a slightly younger audience. Verify is technically a young adult book, although I think that there is a lot of young adult books that are read by anybody from 10 to 90. It's an unusual category that pulls a lot of readers in. And it's a category that you will find a lot of the most political fiction that is being done right now, which is wonderful. It is a space where the character is a young adult. In that time frame, that is where a lot of people are developing their beliefs about the world. They're starting to question whether or not they actually trust what their parents have said, whether or not they've had new experiences that have tested what they've been taught And they start to look at the world around them in a different way and are willing to question it and decide what their place is in it and what they want to do with that place in it. I find it to be a fascinating place to write, especially since there are so many adults that read young adult who are also willing to look at the world around them and decide to test it, you know, and decide what they believe and what they don't. I find a lot of my friends who write adult fiction often have problems where they're asked to remove certain political things out of their books because they say that adults read for escapism often when they're reading genre fiction. In young adult, everybody's willing to confront very large issues in a very um, engaged and, and intellectual way. They're not quite as emotionally willing to push something away because they just don't want to believe it's true. To your point, we have a rule here at the Words Matter Library where you have to either listen to or read the book that you're talking about. So I did, and it is wonderful. And to your point, I think it is a book to me that struck me about young adults, but it is very relatable and it's very topical. And that's one of the reasons why we wanted to have you on because both you as a writer and the world you create and highlight were both so compelling that we really did want to have you on. And so one of the things I want to do is just talk about you for a second. Where are you from and how did you get to where you are? Oh, that's a question. Um, Well, I'm from the Chicagoland area. I was born and bred there. I grew up in a town that's right next to O'Hare Airport. So I grew up listening to planes go overhead. But where I got to now, that's a whole other journey. I started off in musical theater. I did perform in the Chicagoland area for quite a while. I have been on WWF wrestling at one point. You and Donald Trump. There you go. There you have it. Although I don't think he would look quite as good in red satin. (laughs) But it was not a wrestler, sadly enough, although it does look fun. But, you know, acting brought me to telling stories to a lot of different people. And it was fun to tell other people's stories on stage. And somehow I tripped into telling stories on my own on the page. It was an unusual adventure. I was used to kind of expressing other people's ideas and just putting my own spin on it. And suddenly when I was writing fiction, it was my way of really testing questions that I had about the world and trying to decide what I felt about them. 
And that's how I ended up really enjoying writing. And strangely enough, people actually read what I write. Well, absolutely they do. And as we mentioned, you are a New York Times bestselling author. Talk about a little bit what you've written before. I think you've written at least 10 books. Uh, Verify was my 15th. Strangely enough, that was published. There's a few that nobody will ever read. (laughs) I have deleted the first one off of every device because my husband is the type that if I got hit by a bus tomorrow, he would put it up on Amazon just to see if anyone would read it. (laughs) That's not allowed. I'm proud of that book. I'm proud that I finished it. I am proud that it exists. It really should not be read. I needed practice. I started off writing goofy adult fiction, like goofy mysteries. There's an ex-circus camel that wears a hat. Don't take a camel's hat. He will spit. They're roller skating mysteries. My mother was actually a world champion artistic roller skater. So I jumped off of that and wrote roller skating mysteries. They're silly. They're funny. They're completely different. I also have a singing and dancing murder mystery series for adults because death apparently can be funny. And I then tripped into writing young adult. I didn't realize that you could be quite as political. You could be a little more intense and violent at times. In a young adult book, my first young adult New York Times bestselling book was The Testing Trilogy. And The Testing itself is about high stakes tests that we give our kids in school and whether or not these tests and our education system is really developed in the right way to be able to encourage our students to be the very best they can be or whether it tries to pigeonhole them and guess what their futures will be long before they have a chance to actually explore them. It was such an interesting book to write because I didn't No, anyone was going to read it ever. It's now in, I don't know, 20 countries. It's unusual. But it's a book that I could take to Texas and to here in Illinois or to New York and or to Florida or Oklahoma. And everybody was willing to discuss the policy of education without discussing the politics. And it became such a fascinating conversation to have adults, especially that would be in the room, having that conversation and agreeing with each other in a way that they wouldn't agree with if they had been specifically talking from political partisan ideology. What was the consensus? Nobody likes the current model. I will say that that entire series, when I got done writing it, I realized it was a commentary on No Child Left Behind, which was an adventure. Sure. (laughs) But nobody likes it. I have found that everybody really wishes that we could just have a different way of, of benchmarking our students. The teachers hate it. The, the parents hate the tests. Nobody thinks they're effective, and yet we keep doubling down on it because nobody wants to make a mistake in Washington. They don't want to admit that when they change something, it could possibly not work. We all have to risk mistakes in order to get better. Everyday people, every student that I talk to, and I do a lot of school visits, they all know that the best way to learn and the best way to grow is to fail. Right. And yet we don't seem to allow our leaders to do that quite that same thing. I will say during the testing, when I was at a school visit in 2016, we were discussing leadership and the nature of elections and and all of that. And a bunch of the kids actually volunteered to take the testing. They would rather pick our leaders from taking these awful tests to determine life and death tests. You could get killed. And they would rather determine who became leaders that way than actually have to sit through another election like 2016. which says a great deal about our teens right now and what they're thinking about our world. No, I think that you're absolutely right about leaders. I think that our listeners know I worked in the Bush administration. When you look at some of our failings in that, it was because whether it was the president himself or, more importantly, the communicators around him didn't want to admit failures that were obvious, that were later admitted, 
And the length of time that it took for us to do that really did damage to the country and the policy and the situations that we were in. But I think that's that's absolutely right. So I first got to notice you on Twitter because in this world, we really do stick close to our mission that words matter. And you are somebody who seems to appreciate that as well. So talk about how you decided or when you decided to write Verify. And then we're going to talk a little bit about the book and the story and the world you created. Sure thing. I was writing something completely different during the um, 2016 election and the beginning of 2017. And I set it to the side for a while. It was under contract. I had to finish it. But I set it to the side when I heard a political leader say, don't pay attention to anything that you read. Don't believe anything else anyone tells you. Just believe me. And that struck me a great deal because what would that world look like? And I just couldn't understand how other people could listen to our current president or to other political leaders often speak. And some of them I am on the same political spectrum with without actually questioning them. Like they want to walk in lockstep with that person. And they weren't listening to the words that they were saying. They were putting their own intents and their own ideas behind it. And that really disturbed me that people really would be willing to listen to somebody say, you just believe me. And they're like, okay, I'm willing to do that. I mean, we teach people that truth is, and facts are not things that are able to be pliable. Like they should be a fact, should be a fact. And yet suddenly everything was untethered. I also saw on Facebook an aunt of mine post a quote by Thomas Jefferson, which I looked at it, you know, it was whatever meme was shared. And I went, I don't think Thomas Jefferson said that. So sure enough, I fact-checked it, and I didn't uh, find that it was said. I even emailed the people at the Monticello Society. And no, it was not Thomas Jefferson. And while it was a freedom of the press quote, and I very much agreed with it, I did post, I'm sorry. It really wasn't real. But somebody then responded to that and said, well, why does it matter if it's morally correct whether or not that was said by Thomas Jefferson? I went, really? Like, facts should matter. So I decided to write a book to test what would happen if we started to make words and the devaluing of words something that we didn't care about, and then eventually the elimination of words. And if nobody knew how to verify a fact anymore, what would our world look like? It was not a comfortable book to write. Neither was the sequel that will come out next year, which will be called Disclose. But it was something I felt compelled to write because I really wanted to answer the question for myself, how do you educate somebody who already thinks they know what the truth is? How do you find a way to get somebody who disagrees with you just on principle because they, they, they want to believe something? How do you get them to look at a fact and really see the fact and confront whether or not they are right or wrong and make the uncomfortable choice of maybe changing their mind? And we'll be right back. Just like the books and the podcasts we feature on the Words Matter Library, we have a rule. To promote a product, you have to use the product. And today I want to talk to you about Purple Mattress. I often have a hard time falling asleep at night or staying asleep. I wake up frequently feeling stiff and in the morning with pain in my neck and back. And the problem with the previous memory foam mattresses I've used is that they get way too hot and uncomfortable. But I just got a Purple Mattress, and this thing is incredible. It's so comfortable. It stays nice and cool at night. It's different than anything I've ever used before. I never wake up in pain, and I've been getting the best sleep I've ever had. If you're struggling to get a good night's sleep, you've got to try Purple Mattress. The Purple Mattress will probably feel different than anything you've ever experienced. 
because it uses a brand new memory foam that was developed by an actual rocket scientist. It's not like the memory foam I'm used to. The Purple mattress feels unique because it's both firm and soft at the same time. So it keeps everything supported while still feeling really comfortable. Plus, it's breathable, so it sleeps cool. It ends up giving you this zero-gravity-like feel, so it works for any sleeping position. Purple Mattress offers a 100-night risk-free trial. If you're not fully satisfied, you can return your mattress for a full refund. It's backed by a 10-year warranty. There's free shipping and returns and free in-home setup and old mattress removal. You're going to love Purple, and right now our listeners will get a free Purple pillow with the purchase of a Purple mattress. That's in addition to the great free gifts they're offering site-wide. Just text WORDS, one word, to 84888. The only way to get this free pillow is to text WORDS to 84888. That's one word, WORDS, to 84888. Message and data rates may apply. And we're back. One of the questions we try to answer around here is, how did we get here? And as I was just listening to you talk about that, I think about you and I grew up relatively in the same world. And we begin every show, as you know, with a quote from Daniel Patrick Moynihan. One of the reasons we don't identify that it's Senator Moynihan is because I don't want to politicize it. Mm -hmm. Refer to him as a wise man. And I, again, our listeners know I worked for the late, great Tim Russert. And... Later, when I would prep people for that show, uh, I would, at the end, throw in, if he pressed a guest and they didn't answer, he would get upset and he would say, Senator, Madam Secretary, words matter. And I would tell people that that was the signal for you better answer the question or concede the point, because if not, he will spend the rest of the time of that show beating you. And, until you admit the point. But how did we go from a world where you had politicians like Moynihan, journalists like a Russert, to this place where, again, and I think that I remember that Jefferson quote. I remember thinking the same thing. I did my graduate studies in history at UVA, knew it wasn't a Jefferson quote. And like you, even though I agree with it, I have a problem and it, it's troublesome because then we get into a world of relativism. Well, okay, if the Jefferson quote is okay, then that fake Ronald Reagan quote about Donald Trump is okay because it's the spirit of what those people believe. Absolutely. How do you think as somebody who looks at the world, how do you think we've gone in relatively short order from a fact-based world to a world where people seem to care less about that? I've thought about this a great deal. And, you know, when I did the world building for Verify, it became how do we unify a country around something that is inaccurate in that idea. And I think that we opened the lens in our in our country a great deal to uh, tons of points of view, which is the best part of our country. I firmly believe that the more points of view we have, the more discussion we have, the better we we, we look at issues, the, the more we understand and the better people we will be. But opening the lens, especially in the media, caused a completely different a schism in the narrative. Like you would have to believe that everybody, you know, we have a very variety of, of news channels out there and not all of them operate under the same rules. They are willing to put a political belief instead of the facts front and center on certain areas. And I think that that gives other people 
kind of a confirmation that this is what I can believe. You know, this is what is true. And I feel like social media has has very much then fed into where we started there. And I mean, I won't say that all the media stations, because I follow them all. I watch all the news channels, despite it driving my husband just bonkers. Because I want to see what everybody's saying. I want to see what all points of view are. Because I can't have a discussion with somebody who has a narrative in their head that I don't understand. Because to me, I understand what the facts are, but I can't understand why they would well, believe something else. I'm going to press you on that for a second. Sure. Only because as somebody who tries to consume news, and again, even having worked in a Republican White House a million years ago, I still have not watched more than five minutes pre-debate of Fox News. It's tough. And just curious, how do you do it? And at a certain point, don't you know all you need to know from the first five minutes of a Sean Hannity or a Tucker Carlson? Do you have to keep watching? Keep watching? Do you have to keep going down the rabbit hole as dark as it is? Sometimes no. I mean, on certain shows, you get the gist. Like, and I'll flip over and just look at what the headlines are during a major breaking news story to see what everybody is covering. So I know what every facet of our, our country is kind of looking at if they're paying attention to news. There's a large group that just isn't. They would like to believe that what they believe is true, and they don't look at the news because it just disturbs them or it doesn't make them feel okay. And I have thoughts about that as well. But I find that there are certain reporters that I do watch on Fox that I can handle watching. Chris Wallace is one that I, I greatly admire and have, have found, especially his recent shows in, in, in the last uh, month or two, to be really quite fascinating as even he is pressing for answers that very clearly the people who are booked on his show do not want him to have. They don't want the questions asked. Um, obviously, Shep quit over finally differences there. And while I don't politically agree with him on a great number of things, he was an amazing journalist who has has done a good job of at least attempting to weave a narrative of there should be facts into their side. And so it's interesting when I'm talking to people who do watch Fox News, I can ask what shows they watch. Based on that, I kind of know what they're seeing because I've at least sampled it all. I feel like I can't know who they are or where they're coming from to have a conversation unless I'm grounded, at least sort of, in what they've been seeing, what they've been viewing, what they've been told to believe is real. How do you contain, and I know I have this with watching or listening to or reading President Trump's words. I give a great deal of credit to my one of my many former bosses, Lawrence O'Donnell, who doesn't like to play the words, which I think is is correct. How do you, when you're watching that thing that you most likely, can, given what I know about you, don't agree with, how do you contain the outrage? Because for me, one of my problems, and I remember it very distinctly, it was that Sunday where he tweeted about the four members of the United States Congress telling them to go back to where they came from. Yes. Physically, I was so disturbed by that that I checked out for the day. You know, again, this is my job to do this, but I still wasn't able to because I said, you know what, I can't take that assault on my senses. It's Sunday. I'm going to let everybody else figure it out. I'll get up tomorrow morning early and I'll read and watch the things and listen to the things that I do and I'll be able to sort this out. How do you, when you're watching, and I assume it's hours at a certain point during a week of whether it's the president or Fox News, how do you remain the observer that you have to be to be the writer that you are and also still keep your core of what you think and believe? Okay, I can't say that I don't always use the mute button here and there. Okay. Um, that is required at times. And 
I can watch enough to get a gist. There, and once I have, I, sometimes fact checking helps me. I mean, granted, most of it is just inaccurate, but at least I'm finding something to tether reality to. Because you can sometimes watch things and feel like you are in the middle of the emperor's new clothes. Why is it that nobody can see that this isn't real? Why is it that there is this large portion of the country? And I want to say again today, the polling that was coming out, you know, the white evangelical Christians are, are right there with them, 98%. And how is that possible? So there is an anger factor there that you feel because you're like, why can't you see? But the way I managed to to survive that is the part of the reason why I wrote Verify. It's trying to understand for myself how we could possibly have gotten here, how it could get worse. And in testing it also on, on most spectrums, I get just as frustrated with the people who believe the wildly untethered supposed facts, they're not facts, that is often coming out of the White House or is coming from the supporters of the president or is coming from various news personalities because they're completely unreal. But, you know, and I fact check them and I'm like, no, how can you possibly even believe that that's true? And I get very upset with the media that, that is willing to validate those things and find excuses for why they're real. Because that's, I think, the bigger problem. It gives credence to the people who want to believe it. They're like, oh, well, this person also said it's true, so it must be true. Fact check your own work, please. But writing Verify really taught me to also be upset with the people that are on the other political spectrum who often want to believe that everyone should also be in lockstep. Right. You're seeing that right now in the election, where if you do not believe that this person's plans are awesome or this person's ideas are the best, and, and you believe in that person, you're automatically turning against the other people who are on your side. I mean, we're all on the same side. Typically, we're all supposed to be on the same side. We're treating politics very much like it's a sporting event where you must be all in or all out. You must either hate the other team or not. And you're, I'm seeing it on, I hate the what about the other sideism, but you see it everywhere. No, and I think I think that's right. You mentioned social media, and it's one of the things because I want to kind of get into the verify world too. Again, when you and I started paying attention to public affairs, it was the nightly news, Sunday shows, morning shows, and the newspaper, radio, of course. But um, how much of again? I love the Jefferson quote example, which if the, if someone had written a New York Times op-ed about that thirty years ago and they'd gotten the quote wrong, the next day or the next week, New York Times would publish a correction. How much of social media and the phenomenon of Facebook, Twitter, all those things contributes to our, again, going paperless, again, to lay it into the Verify world. How much of that has sped up this, this phenomenon? I think it's made putting everybody in a silo so much easier. Because if you are exposed to different ideas than your own, you're forced to test them a bit. You're supposed like, oh, hey, a lot of people have, it's been in the paper. A lot of people have read this, people that I believe are good people, so I should maybe consider this. Facebook, Twitter, even Instagram to a sport, although that's mostly like fun pictures of food, at least in my Instagram And dogs and feeds. cats. And dogs and cats. I do have videos of my kittens. Those, especially Facebook and Twitter, they allow you to curate your feed so you only see the things that validate your own opinion. And it's really easy to mute or block somebody, so suddenly that thing that might force you into that uncomfortable place where you have to ask questions and you might have to 
test your own theories against what's real and what's not and decide maybe you're wrong. That doesn't exist as much anymore. People are more inclined to curate their feeds so that it validates them or at least keep so much in their feeds that they feel absolutely correct in believing whatever it is that is published in a meme one day. Because if it's on a meme, it must be true. I mean, it's an unusual phenomenon right now. And yet when we talk to our teens or our, our kids and they have to do a school assignment, we would never let them get away with that. Right. And yet our, our social media feeds are filled with that kind of information. And most people, even if they know something's not real, they don't want to push back on it. Because, well, what's the point? What's the harm? Well, and you get, and you get criticized for it. I mean, I, you do. But sometimes you have to be willing to stand up for what you believe. You have to use your words in a way that are effective. I mean, words really do matter. And not just because it's the podcast. But it really does. I mean, and it's our, we, we don't look at our social media words as if they are real. We're treating them as if they are throwaway words that don't really matter because, hey, somebody's going to post what they ate for dinner at 7 o'clock at night, and then they're going to be posting something else at 7.30, and then at 8 o'clock they're doing something else. So it goes by really fast, and why does it matter? But they do matter. Every single one of those words is building a narrative and walling people in block by block into this very siloed belief that they have. And fighting against that is challenging. So you put aside what you've been writing. You see where we are in culture and the world. Talk a little bit about Verify tell as much as you want or as little as you want of the story. And again, you talked about as a writer, world building. I'm very fascinated by the world you've created. And as you discuss, one of the things that I observe is people like to talk about where we are as Orwellian, which, you know, we're all familiar with 1984. 1984 has had a great resurgence <laughs> in publication right now. But there's also other authors. Bradbury comes to mind with yes, Fahrenheit. Fahrenheit 451. Exactly. And to me, I always say, you know, one of the, my critiques of Orwell is that Bradbury got right that Orwell didn't, which is we embrace the technology. We don't hide from it. We don't sneak around corners to – we willingly carry it. And somebody who writes about young adults, try to take it out of a 16-year-old's hand – we give them a lot of grief for this, or at this point, a 50-year-old's hand. <laughs> so talk a little bit about the world you created, where in the future it is, and just the parameters. Sure. Uh, Verify is set 70 years in the future. I've actually had a few people that you know tag me on social media that are like, there's no way the world can change as much as you say in that amount of time. It would have to have been some big event. And I want to point out, hey, just look at where we were three years ago, four years ago, and how much has been normalized and changed, like how little our expectations have been about even what our government can do. So when I created Verify, I very deliberately said it in the nearest future that I could, that I could figure out how to make my scenario work. Yeah, just, just, just to remember, as somebody who studied history, I always remind people of things like 70 years is the difference between the end of the Civil War and the crash of 1929. Oh, sure. It's a long period of time, but people in their heads don't believe that something could change so much in a year or two why years did you pick or three. 70? Because I have a theory about 70, but explain why you picked I chose 70 because I wanted to be able to pull words out of our language. That was my, my, my whole point was, okay, what if words like verify? People don't know how to fact check. Well, they would have to have taken that word away from us. And I've seen the devaluing of words so very much that after a while, it would be pretty easy to, I think, get people to just not do certain things and not believe that these words are really important. So I started to try to decide, 
at what point do we lose a word? Like say nobody's using it for a while or we take it out of our language. How long would it take? Would it be just a generation? Would it be two? So, you know, in, in 20 years, someone might be still using the word again, even though it's fallen out of fashion. But, you know, in 50, a lot of those people might be gone. And by 70, to me, that felt like a good cycle as to when they would be gone. I think you're absolutely accurate on that. Again, as somebody who looks at history, I don't think it was an accident that the crash of 2008 happened 70 years plus after the crash of 29. And then that 70-year period is when people forget. Again, the rise of fascism. You have people with no living memory or very few or those people are 80 plus. Well, and really, who's listening to them anyway? Right. We have so many people with a living memory of history that are still out there that most people have never talked to or aren't listening to their stories. And we should be paying attention to history more. History is something that I use greatly in Verify because one of the things that does when you go paperless, when you when you are all ebooks, which is a great green friendly, you know, concept. It, it is not just I'm not I, I say that the, the book is political. It is not partisan because it does pull from some of the pet projects from both sides of the aisle. That would be very popular. And going green is incredibly popular. But anything taken to the extreme can be problematic and can be used as a weapon. Sometimes we don't think through what the weapon could be. So in the case of going all digital, that's great. We can preserve so many books and it takes up less space and it takes up less trees. But what could be edited out? And just small changes in history alter everything about what you believe about the past. They always say that history goes to the victor. The story is always told by the person who won the war. So they're, of course, always the good guys and the ones that are like that lost are the bad guys. And you'll see like just minor tweaks in history can change how we feel about something. So um, the textbook change that has happened in Texas, and especially starting around 2010, was when you started to see new Texas textbooks arise. And if you look up some of the stories, they're fascinating. But they're just small changes in words. Like they'll talk about slavery. They've reduced the amount that they discuss it. And they'll call somebody a slave once. But then they're workers. The change of that one word referring to someone as a worker instead of a slave. Or they start to, instead of saying that they were beaten, they will say, well, someone was beating them. Like they'll, they'll use a more passive tense. They find they, they were beaten instead of that their masters beat them. Something that feels immediate. They start to pull away and use a passive tense to make it feel not so bad. And they have started to stress that states' rights were the bigger part of the war for the Civil War as opposed to slavery. And yes, that had an economic pull and everything else. But you know what? Most of those people were just happy to like have the economic boon of having slaves that they didn't have to pay. Right. But just changing those, those little bits in history, I mean, imagine what students are, are reading and believing. So 70 years in the future, we've gone all digital. Talk about that. Well, I looked at where we are now and decided, well, okay, the pendulum is swinging fairly far one direction. Well, often we over course correct and we might swing it to the other way in which something like all digital and all recycling and really being incredibly environmental friendly would be a good thing. As an author, I am aware of ebooks more than maybe most people and, and kind of some of the benefits. Someone sends me a typo. I can send it to my editor and they can push out that change in a matter of seconds to somebody. And it's uploaded into their devices the next day. And most people don't even know anything's been changed. Wow. Unless you have the settings on that or depending on your device. But really more and more, it just kind of happens. It just magically happens. So imagine what could be changed on your device, especially since in eBooks, you don't own the book. You only own the license to the book. You don't actually own the physical book. You don't own your version of it. 
Amazon has proven that before where they've just removed things from people's devices. That's always fun. So you start to wonder what could be changed if we had no books to compare something to. And again, if you had the paper edition, you could fact check it against the Eve edition. But if we don't know how to do that anymore, there would be no one would see the need to have those paper books. And think about all the space we would have in our cities and what we could use that space for. We could use it for all sorts of different things. We don't need libraries. So many libraries nowadays don't have as many books. It would make moving a lot easier, too. Well, there you go. I know. The number of books I have in my house is pretty impressive. So what are the consequences of living in that world and somebody who starts to question? I will say that the world you create is not a particularly dark world. It's no, actually a, it's beautiful. It's a happy world. Well, it is at 70 years in the future in Chicago. And I'm from Chicago, so that's part of the impetus because I know it well. But Chicago has never been more beautiful, and it's never been safer. And it's fun when I go to school visits, especially in – I was in uh, South Carolina, in, in the northern part of South Carolina last week. And you tell the kids it's in Chicago, and Chicago is perfectly safe, and there's almost no crime. And you start to get gasps. It, just me saying I'm from Chicago, people assume that I couldn't possibly walk down the street ever in Chicago without being shot. The current narrative by our president is that Chicago is a war zone. And that's what a lot of people have come to believe. So I said it in Chicago because if I say that there is no crime there, people automatically know we're in the future. But they have very specific feelings about that, which is kind of fun. It is completely safe. People can walk down the street. It's beautiful. They've used art now. Artists are, are part of the government. It's based on the theory that if you, if your neighborhood looks beautiful, then you will be proud of it and you will help kind of police it on your own and keep it looking beautiful. And, the broken and window theory. It yes. absolutely is the broken window theory. It's exactly where it came from, except it's the whole artist prospect because also art is often something that is controlled in authoritarian regimes. So kind of combining those two things. And... For everybody walking down the street, for most people, everything looks great. They believe it's fantastic. There is only two news channels now and two really TV channels you're dealing with because the more you can narrow people's focus of what they see. And they feel like they're having all these great shared experiences. They all feel like they have a lot in common with each other because they're sharing what they see on TV every day as well. Have we, have we figured out guns? They have figured out guns, but in a very different way. Uh, they have made the uh, tracking of bullets a thing. So bullets have been – are the way that if that bullet is – because everything has to have a number, all bullets have to be registered. If that bullet is used, even if it's not you shooting the gun, but you were the one that bought it, you are responsible as well. That was actually a Daniel Patrick Moynihan proposal of taxing taxing bullets. And- I have found that proposal to be fascinating. It's a way that, okay, so it's not about the guns. How do you go about it then? How do you change the narrative right. so people have to actually decide whether or not it's really – or Second Amendment right or something else that they're c- concerned about. And he was his, – his point from a public policy point of view was that if you looked at it objectively and we had a 10,000-year supply of firearms and, again, calculating the firearms that still were operational from even the colonial period that, that, that we had. Um, but we only have about a two-and-a-half to three-year supply of bullets. And unlike firearms, bullets go bad. Yes. And so, OK, I like that. That's uh, – so, I mean, it, it was an interesting world to build. How do you make it safe? What do you do with the people who disagree with you? Right. Who start to question, who, who do maybe have those books secreted away that they never really wanted to give up because, let's face it, you couldn't pry my books out of my hands. Right. At least most of them. So what do you do with them? Well, it's just easier if they're not there. 
if people believe only what they're told, it's easy to make them feel like that's not a bad thing. There's a lot of moving trucks that people see around. Like suddenly somebody just goes away and everyone's told, hey, they move for work. Well, how do you know? Right. It's just easier to believe what's what's simple, what makes you happy, what makes you feel safe. It's kind of like feeling like taking off your shoes at the airport actually makes you safe on the plane. You know, it, it, you, you want to buy into it. People want to buy into what makes them feel happy and safe. They don't like what makes them uncomfortable. And the government can use that very easily to, or we can use it against each other very easily because where we grow and change is when we are uncomfortable. But that also forces us to feel uncomfortable. And most of us would just rather feel safe and rather feel everything's fine. So in Verify, I make it all look great. And our heroine, it isn't until someone hands her a piece of paper on the street that has a word she's never seen before on it that she starts to wonder what that word is. And when she looks it up online to find the definition, it sounds alarms and it calls the police. And she's warned away. But I would argue that depending on who we are and depending on what our place in the world is, and especially for teens, teens don't necessarily take somebody telling them how to think very well. Right. And sometimes they have questions and they forget that it can be dangerous to find the answers. Even when there is danger, they're willing to run headlong into it. And she's not willing to just accept what she's told anymore. She really does want to know what's real and what's not and is willing to try to find that out for herself. Obviously, by the name of our podcast and our mission here, I have thought that this really is a test of that concept that you and I clearly believe in, that words matter. Yes. In the 2019 world, how are we doing on that score? We're doing terribly. We have lost the ability to choose our words with care. I, I think that the 2016 election really started to devalue words in a huge way. And a lot of times it was just by saying, don't be politically correct, which a lot of people felt meant that you can say whatever you want. It doesn't mean if you're, matter if you're accurate or not. And people want the, the the rush of saying whatever wild or crazy or a thing, like whatever thing they just wish to believe. They like the, the emotional endorphined rush of, of being able to say it and not care what somebody else believes. I find that it is unusual to live in a time right now where the words facts matter is controversial. Right. And it really has been. We're not doing well with with valuing our words. I think adults are letting down our, our teen population and our kids a great deal because we're not sometimes choosing them with care. We're, we're not insisting that it's easier. Like you always say, don't to discuss religion or politics around the dining room table. I find that to be perhaps the worst thing that we could ever do right. because we're not talking to each other. And that means that like don't upset somebody. Well, maybe you should just choose your words with care. Maybe you should make your argument with care. Maybe it means that we should talk more because the more we talk, I might not agree with you, but I get to ask questions. I get to understand. And maybe you'll understand where I'm coming from. And maybe at some point, one of us or we'll both change our minds about each other. Maybe we'll grow a little bit closer together. We're using words right now in a way that push the political partisan sides apart even farther. And I am very proud of some of the representatives right now in Congress because they are aware that people right now are using their words for shock value, that when they're said in public, people are not willing to actually be honest. So they're doing a lot of their work right now in, in depositions and in, in rooms where people can actually say what they mean. They can try to be as factually honest as humanly possible, hopefully. 
And they're not grandstanding and using the words for the emotional rush that they'll get as opposed to being actually factually accurate and moving us as a country forward. Do you see us able to change that? Do you see us able to get people to, in a, in a real way, politicians or leaders? Where does it start? With the teens. It's part of the reason that Verify belongs as a teen book. It's it's one of the reasons I wrote it in that space. It's funny. There's a lot of um, think pieces always about young adult fiction. Right. And it's always making fun of the adults that sometimes read young adult fiction or they think that it is a space that is being written in where it's kind of dumbed down stories. And I have thoughts about whether or not those people have actually read young adult fiction. I was going if you've listened or read, I don't <laughs> think you can claim that. But okay. Well, and I mean, not all books are meant for all people. There is a category of young adult that is very much pushing a, a ideas that really are about our modern day world and are opening up a discussion. And really, teens are the place where they they are inheriting this world. They are the ones that are going to have to be walking around it. They see what's going on right now. And the, that's, that's the, what I wanted to ask you. You talk a lot. You visit schools. Do. You do that. Have you noticed that they have an aversion to what they see going on? Oh, or, absolutely. Or do they accept it? They don't accept it. I mean, now, I can't say that, you know, as a blanket rule because, I mean, obviously not all people walk in lockstep. So, I mean, there's always going to be a portion that are not engaged or are just going to kind of go with what their parents say. But there's a huge swath of them. I would say well more than 75, 80 percent that really are paying attention. In the presentations I've been doing on tour, we'll talk about Verify, we'll talk about taking words away and why it's important. And, you know, I, I actually use the word homework frequently, like, let's get rid of homework. And, <laughs> but the implications of it, just because you got rid of homework and the government bans that word doesn't mean that the work goes away. Now you have to do it at school. And what does that mean? And just trying to show why one word could really affect their entire lives. But I also discuss with them, you know, how many adults have told them they don't get to have an opinion about something specifically because they're not old enough to have formed an opinion. And most of them are like two hands in the air and will shout who it is out. And it starts a really interesting discussion because they all have opinions. They all have shown people things. Like they've gone and fact-checked stuff to try to prove their point because they know that no adult will believe them unless they have 12 sources to back it up. And still they are told, but that's not what I believe. And they're frustrated. It reminds me so much of the Parkland teens. I take a great deal of inspiration from the work that they did because they finally stood up and they didn't care who in the media or who else on Twitter and social media was telling them that they don't get to have an opinion because they're too young. They didn't care that people said that, oh, you're just espousing something that an adult told you to say. They're like, are you kidding me? I lived through this. I believe this. I've done my homework. I met a teen in Noblesville, Indiana that he was a ninth grader, but last year at his middle school, there was a school shooting. And he has now joined part of the March for Our Lives, and he is one of the activists on the ground. And he feels it's horrific that he has to be an activist. He's like, you know, I should be able to just be a kid. My parents got to be kids. But you know what? That doesn't matter. Things are too important right now, and we have to fight for our lives. And it's not just on that. He was very excited about Verify. Because to him, that was part of it. People like to use the Second Amendment as a, a shield for the gun debate. And he's like, but they haven't even read what the Second Amendment says. Like, he's like, look at what the Second Amendment says. It doesn't say what they think it does. You, we can debate what those words mean, but you can't ignore the words that are there. And those teens really are paying attention. And I feel like 
I'd love to be controversial and say, lower the voting age to 16. It would change the nature of our country a great deal if the kids that we trusted to drive cars, I mean, we trust them with, with what could be a weapon, you know, in killing someone, if they got to be a part of the debate. Imagine how different even trying to find them online to market to them would be very, very different. I think the teens are where we really are changing things. And people who discount their opinions do so at their own peril. The book is called Verify. It embodies the idea and concept and the truism that words do matter. Thank you so much for joining us. Well, thank you. This has been a real pleasure. Just like the books and the podcasts we feature on the Words Matter Library, we have a rule. To promote a product, you have to use the product. And today I want to talk to you about Purple Mattress. I often have a hard time falling asleep at night or staying asleep. I wake up frequently feeling stiff and in the morning with pain in my neck and back. And the problem with the previous memory foam mattresses I've used is that they get way too hot and uncomfortable. But I just got a Purple Mattress, and this thing is incredible. It's so comfortable. It stays nice and cool at night. It's different than anything I've ever used before. I never wake up in pain, and I've been getting the best sleep I've ever had. If you're struggling to get a good night's sleep, you've got to try Purple Mattress. The Purple Mattress will probably feel different than anything you've ever experienced because it uses a brand new memory foam that was developed by an actual rocket scientist. It's not like the memory foam I'm used to. The Purple Mattress feels unique because it's both firm and soft at the same time. So it keeps everything supported while still feeling really comfortable. Plus, it's breathable, so it sleeps cool. It ends up giving you this zero-gravity-like feel, so it works for any sleeping position. Purple Mattress offers a 100-night risk-free trial. If you're not fully satisfied, you can return your mattress for a full refund. It's backed by a 10-year warranty. There's free shipping and returns and free in-home setup and old mattress removal. You're going to love Purple. And right now, our listeners will get a free Purple pillow with the purchase of a Purple mattress. That's in addition to the great free gifts they're offering site-wide. Just text WORDS, one word, to 84888. The only way to get this free pillow is to text WORDS to 84888. That's one word, WORDS, to 84888. Message and data rates may apply. Thank you for listening to Words Matter. Please rate and review Words Matter on Apple Podcasts and other podcast providers. 